Unlock the past and safeguard your memories with ScanMyPhotos.com. Here's our special promo code, GoDigital, to get a whopping up to 50% off your photo scanning order. Don't let your cherished moments fade away. Digitize them now with precision and care. Whether it's old slides, photos, or films, bring them into the digital age and relive those precious memories. This is an affiliate promotion, meaning we may earn a commission if you take advantage of this fantastic deal. Act fast, preserve your history, and save big with Go Digital at ScanMyPhotos.com. Hi, I'm Maureen Taylor, the photo detective. I really love family photographs, all of them. From the mystery images you find in shoeboxes and albums, to the pictures you snap with your digital devices. No mystery is too small. A simple question about an image can lead to new stories of your ancestors. This means you can count on me to help you identify the people in them, offer solutions for preserving and organizing them, and yes, even guide you in the various ways to gather and share picture stories with your relatives. My guest today is Amelia Soth, and she writes a column for JSTOR called Cabinet of Curiosities. And I love that. So tell us something about yourself, Amelia. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I've been writing for JSTOR Daily for a couple of years now, and I'm just absolutely fascinated by sort of oddities of history and anything that sheds light on the ways in which people who lived in the past experience the world differently than we do, the ways in which you can sort of, history serves as a window into the past that allows you to sort of experience a different way of seeing, relating, feeling. It's just absolutely fascinating to me. It it is absolutely fascinating. Do you have a background in history? Sort of. So in college, I studied Near Eastern languages and civilizations. It's a term for a major that really only my school has, but I studied Islamic history, Islamic art, Arabic. And so that's sort of my background in history. It sort of introduced me to like, you know, the way the the field works and the way that historians write. And so that's that's my academic background. (laughs) All that stuff. But since then, I have been writing much more broadly with a particular interest in the early modern era and the 1700s. So I read a ton of academic writing for my column. I read probably hundreds of pages of academic writing for every little 700 word article that I produce. I have to give you a lot of credit for that. <laughs> That's a little... It's kind of overkill, but I like to really make sure I get it right. So Yeah, yeah. So the thing about history is, and I have a background in history, is, you know, people think it's, I don't know, almost one-dimensional. Like people lived and this is how they lived. But the richness of life is the same as we have today. And the oddities, the thing, is a fairly new focus for historians and collectors. I mean, the oddity markets, I think, what was the first one? Like LA, maybe? 
or New York. I only started hearing about it maybe 10 years ago at the most. But you've written some really fascinating articles. The one that popped you to the top of my podcast guest list was one on jewelry made out of vulcanized rubber. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's not the vulcanization process, is it? Of rubber is very much 19th century when they discovered they could make this and now we have tires and we have everything else. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what what about the jewelry? Why jewelry out of it? And I actually have never seen a piece. The reason that they started making jewelry out of vulcanized rubber is because it was a really ideal substitute for jet. And jet, you might know, is like the mourning material for Victorians, for the upper classes. It's a kind of fossilized wood. It's really glossy and black and beautiful. Queen Victoria wore a lot of jet jewelry. And vulcanized rubber has a lot of the same sort of material qualities. Um, It's also when it's new, it's glossy and black. Also, what I think is really interesting about it is there are certain qualities that jet has that other precious stones don't really. Like it's really light and it's actually like sort of warm to the touch. It's not cool like a lot of precious stones. So I think that that's, and those are qualities that vulcanized rubber also shares. So that's something that's really interesting to me that these sort of tactile qualities that to us might feel like plastic, might make something feel a little cheap or tacky, are actually something that would make vulcanized rubber feel more like jet to a person in the era who's familiar with the way jet feels. And so vulcanized rubber came in as like a cheaper substitute. And, or jet. and some of these are like pendants with photographs in them or lockets. Mm-hmm. Lockets, necklaces, brooches, tiaras even I've seen. And they're really interesting to look at because you can sort of, at least with the way they've aged over time, you can sort of see the, the rubberiness of these things. But you have to like put yourself in the mindset of someone who doesn't live in a world full of plastic and how that would have appeared to you. Do do we have any sense of, was this sort of like jet for the middle and lower classes? Yes, yes, that's right. It would be a much more accessible option financially. And the way I actually first got really interested in vulcanized rubber jewelry was because of some work that was done on an archaeological site called the Dorchester Industrial School for Girls. And so this is a site that it was a basically like an orphanage or a home for girls whose parents could not afford to raise them. And they did archaeological work on this site recently and discovered all these fascinating things, including in the like toilet of the school, a fragment of a vulcanite chain that had gotten dropped in there at some point. And so I was reading about this discovery and the way that the researchers had written about it was just so moving and so beautifully empathetic, you know, trying to imagine the person who, to whom this necklace would have meant something because it's a mourning necklace. It signifies someone that you've lost and imagining what happened that this like precious object landed in the toilet. Did someone steal it and then drop it in there to hide what happened? Did it get broken? Like, was it, I don't know, just like a moment of total desperation and sadness. We rip it off. I don't know. There's just something about like the crystallization of that story and the significant object that had been 
buried for decades and then dug up. And then we have to just sort of try and imagine what it meant. That was just so compelling to me. So have you been able to actually look at pieces of these vulcanized rubber jewelry pieces? I mean, is there a collection somewhere that Mm, I don't actually know if there's a collection somewhere. I've looked at lots of pieces online. I've seen some pieces in museums. I haven't been able to handle any, unfortunately. I would love that. Yeah. But yeah, but I do. There's some good pieces in the Victorian Albert Museum that you can look at online. And you can really compare the vulcanite pieces to the jet pieces that they have there. They have really fine jet pieces. And so that's a good way to sort of get a like a, a visual comparison and a lot of historical context too. And, and then there are lots of collectors online, of course. Yeah, I, I bet I, I have to do some research into this. It's fascinating. So when you were doing the research for your article and you say that you do a lot of background reading, did you find out that there are certain companies that specialize this and advertised for it? And if there's any kind of, I mean, you probably don't know this, but what some of these pieces might've cost. I don't know exactly what they would have cost. There are uh, specific vulcanite jewelry companies. I think there's one they talk about in the the site where they're describing the archaeological dig of the Dorchester Industrial School. That's just called like the Vulcanite Rubber Company <laughs> or something like that. But you can find period advertisements. There are a lot of interesting advertisements for like morning warehouses where they'll advertise an entire morning set. You get your whole getup, your dress, your whole jewelry set, everything you need. So those are very interesting to look at. So you have this company that makes these jewelry pieces. And then in my mind, you have a photograph that you have done at the photo studio. Like you show this beautiful one in your article and it's put in a mounting, like a locket piece like half a locket and then you go to some other place so you mail it away and get this jewelry made or the jeweler does it for you or the photography studio had it available it's unclear to me at what point in this process the photograph gets added to these pieces of jewelry Uh, and I'm not sure you know we know that there's lots of history that's unwritten and unknown and just taken for granted our everyday things it's only yes. sort of the more notable stuff that gets popped to the top. Absolutely. And that's I, that's what I love about these pieces is the feeling that they would have been very much owned and used by ordinary people. And that there's so much emotional charge to like, yeah, you're talking about the photograph and you think about an ordinary lower class, middle class person for whom having a photograph of a loved one would be very precious. And the process of like cutting it and inserting it into a piece of jewelry. I don't, there's just like this emotional charge to every step, to every little aspect of an object like this. Yeah. And there's loss and remembrance in those mm-hmm. pieces as well. And yeah, even setting it maybe with a coil of their hair, just like yeah, everything is so tactile and so like fraught. Yeah, I mean, what I'm now I think about what's the deterioration of these pieces like? Maybe because when you think about what happens to a rubber band over time, or even tires break down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do we know anything about the lifespan of this jewelry? Well, I know that they 
they get a, a bloom on them when they're exposed to sunlight and they sort of start to go sort of like olive brown color. So you can see a lot of the older ones, they, they're not even really black anymore, but it's, it's to do with sunlight. So the more it's exposed, the more it's worn, the more it fades. Um, so you can think about like the more someone like loved this piece and wore this piece, the more it would deteriorate. Oh. Whereas ones that have been kept in, in storage and kept away from light will honestly still look almost exactly like jet, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. What about other things that you've written about for the Cabinet of Curiosities? I saw something pop across my feed not that long ago about Victorian insect jewelry. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a very fun topic. There's a lot of very colorful sort of tabloid pieces from the era that will tell stories of like, oh, some so-and-so had a, had a live beetle attached to a chain and crawling across her dress. And that's the latest thing of the season. A lot of these are they're like very like playful little piece of ephemera. So it's hard to say if anyone actually did this, but definitely people had beetle wing dresses. I don't know if you've ever seen any of these beautiful beetle wing dresses from this era. No, but they're absolutely stupendous. Like what era are we talking about? Green. This is, this is Victorian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it would be like a, like a sort of loose linen dress and then iridescent green beetle wings embroidered onto the fabric. I yes. mean, as an inspiration, the beetle wing being the inspiration for the. No, I mean that. like physical beetle wings. Actual beetle wings. Actual beetle Is wings. Is that what we're talking about here? Insects. And like set in like beads. Yeah. And I think that comes from Indian fashion ultimately, and then was brought into England through this colonial process of extracting ideas and culture and fashion and turning them into your own ideas and culture and fashion. That's just creepy. Yes. <laughs> That's just creepy. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But there is also this crisis happening during the Victorian era with industrialization advancing where people felt like they were so separated from nature. And so you see all these different things happening where people are trying to incorporate the natural world, taxidermy, it was it was a very fashionable thing for a young Victorian woman to do taxidermy. By the way, it was a it was a ladylike pursuit, but people were trying to bring the natural world into these sort of industrial urban enclaves where they're surrounded by smog, they're surrounded by vehicles, they're getting more and more separated from the pastoral dream, and then the pastoral dream becomes more and more romantic. I write very broadly about a lot of different time periods and a lot of different topics, but I feel like I. It's a project of trying to sort of slowly knit together a cohesive timeline of world history in my own head by reading about one specific oddity, using it as a lens to understand a specific period of time, and then moving to another and moving to another and slowly knitting it all together into something that feels like I actually understand the past. It's elusive, isn't it? Understanding the past. I'm fascinated with the idea of what the past sounded like. Mm. Not so much what it smelled like, because we (laughs) know it would have been bad, (laughs) but what it sounded like, because things would sound different. You know, the the sound of a certain type of hammer on a nail when they're building a house is not necessarily the sound that we have, that disturbing sound of the ka-chunk of the nail Mm. gun. That's different. And how do you... and Recently, there was just, was, where was it? Was it on Twitter or TikTok where there was a performance of 
historians, music historians, who mm. recreated what a Greek of the Greek and Roman period, a Greek concert would have sounded like mm. from wow. fr- fragments of music, and they used authentic instruments, and it was beautiful. That sounds absolutely incredible. It was incredible. How do you find your topics? Sort of a hopscotch from one topic to another. I So I'll, I'll be reading about one thing and then it sort of puts me on to another idea. For instance, when I was reading about this Victorian Vulcanite jewelry piece, I ended up also in the process reading quite a bit about the history of the rubber industry and rubber extraction in the Amazon. And it's a very, very dark history. But that led me down a path of writing another piece about that topic for a place called Washington Square Review. And then that will lead me somewhere else and somewhere else and somewhere else. And that's what I what I mean about trying to knit together a cohesive timeline of the world, that all these things are interlinked, you know, and even like these little tiny oddities that seem like such a frivolous thing to focus on, you can zoom out from them to understand so much about a particular time period. And then that will lead you on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Well, it's all about context. Yeah. How do these things that might be seen as odd actually fit into the greater context, like the beetle wing dresses? Yes, yes, exactly. There's a reason for them. Or the vulcanized jewelry. They're vulcanite. There's a reason for that. You know, Mm -hmm. people wanted to, in the Victorian period, death was much nearer to folks than today. And they wanted to remember people that had died and they couldn't afford the fancy stuff. Yeah. Just like today. I feel like that's part of what I find so compelling about it is that death, yeah, death was much nearer than like you said, but the way that people cared and loved about each loved each other was the same. And the desire to remember people and make something meaningful out of loss was the same. And I feel like once you can engage with that, it you can move so much nearer to people that lived 100, 200, 300 years before you. Yeah. I mean, as, so a, yeah, as yeah. a historian, we were always taught when you're studying the past, try not to bring the present with you. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in order to understand the past, you have to understand all these quirky little things that were part of our ancestors' lives. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's always a push pill because you're not, you're trying not to yeah, project yourself onto other people and project your assumptions, but you, I think you kind of have to bring some level of, of a desire to connect or, or empathy into the picture or else people just seem, I don't know, cartoonish. Yeah. I mean, there's that, that wonderful sense of, you know, there are those books, you know, things are always better in the past, but people were people. Mm-hmm. They had yeah. lives, so they might not have the same technology, but the pattern of their lives is the same. They walked and talked and loved and died and had kids or not. And, you know, just a little bit different than us, but mostly the same. Yes. That's what I think of the past, but I mean, you know, I think I'm talking to you. We're (laughs) definitely on the same page here, but not all historians feel that way. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, what else do you think you want to do with all of this that you've written about? I've toyed with the idea of putting the essays together into a book of some kind, maybe drawing out some of the themes that I've seen. I'm very interested in material histories. So that's another reason that I, I write about vulcanized rubber, stuff like that. I'm very interested in in the idea of like, what's the process of taking a raw material from nature and turning it into something that has all this cultural resonance for us? Mm-hmm. How do we, not only just the process of how we extract things, how does the labor work? How do the labor relations work? But also how do we project meaning onto the things that we have? So I've thought about putting together a series of essays that all have that theme of sort of material history, following different materials, maybe. I wrote a piece a while ago about glass delusions. That was one I really enjoyed. You might be able to find that one. It's about that? how So this was a phenomenon in like the 15, 1600s, where it was, it, they're not common, but surprisingly prevalent delusion for people to believe that they were made out of glass. That and people were made out of glass? Yes. That So it would be like you yourself would believe I'm made out of glass. My body is very fragile. My body is breakable. There were people who had special padded clothes designed for themselves to protect themselves from being shattered, you know? Really? And yes, it's, it's very fascinating. Richard Burton wrote about it in The Anatomy of Melancholy, which is one of the first texts ever written about like mental health, essentially. So, and one of the kings of France was suffered under the delusion that he was made out of glass. But they, they knew they weren't glass if they fell down. <laughs> I think that it's a good question, right? I was talking actually to a group of uh, cognitive neuroscience PhDs about this topic, and they were all just absolutely baffled. They were like, how can they, you know, they fell down. They must know, they must realize. But it's just like, that's just not how delusions work, I guess. You just, you just believe it. And of course, people take a lot of precautions to prevent themselves from falling down because they're so afraid of what might happen. But what a lot of people have posited was that at that time, all these technological advancements had happened in the creation of glass. So glass was taking on all these new forms that people had never seen it be able to take on before. And sort of in the way someone today might believe that they've got a computer chip in their brain at that time it seemed plausible that maybe you could make a human being out of glass because who knows what they can make out of glass. They can make all these incredible new things out of glass that no one ever thought they'd be able to make. And so I think it's just very interesting how sort of technological innovation and our internal emotional worlds, what we believe about ourselves and each other seem to move hand in hand in this unpredictable way. Like who would think that glass blowers innovating would cause people to believe that they might be made of glass? But who would imagine (laughs) it's something that seems to happen. There was a period of time when a lot of people believed they were made of cement that was linked to technological advancements in cement. So yes. Interesting. Very interesting. The, the permutations of mental illness. Yeah. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> it leaves me speechless. Uh, I'm just very interested in these in these linkages between our material world and our inner emotional spiritual self. Well, the tactile investigate. Right, yes. you're interested in the ta- in tactile. The, I am the material. Very, I'm very interested in yes things that you can touch stuff. and feel yes. and get a sense of. Exactly fascinating. What do you think about photographs? 
in this whole realm of things that you study? I think that I I would love to learn a lot more about them. I've done a little bit. It's another thing where I need to, I feel like I need to really dive in and understand how something works before I can even like comment on it. I did a little cyanotyping recently with a friend of mine. Oh, it's so fun. It's and so yes, fun. That what a wonderful process. What a rewarding process. So I had a, a great time with that. And I think that's like the most tactile experience I've ever had with a sort of photographic-esque medium. Anyway, this has been fascinating. I, I don't even know what to ask you because I know I'm going to look at your list of essays and just think, where's she going to go now? How often does this column appear? Once a month. So pretty much you spend a whole month doing the research and a small amount of time writing the essay. Yeah. Yes. I I think of it as like a distillation process. A ton of material has to go into the vat to get boiled down into the concentrated syrup of the column. Yep. Because it's 700 (laughs) words. It's not 3000 words. No. (laughs) You have to like pull out the most important things that you've read, the ones that are the most significant. Amelia, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for, you know, letting me just go off on my tangents. Anytime. You can come back anytime, anytime. (laughs) But I will be definitely reading your your essay every month now just to see what quirky things you've come up with about the past. Well, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy it. And I look forward to listening to more episodes. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media, leave me a rating and a review. And if you know of a friend or family member who's also interested in family photographs, share this episode with them too. See you next time. I'm thrilled to be offering something new. Photo Investigations. These collaborative one-on-one sessions look at your family photos. You and I meet to discuss your mystery images and find out how each clue and hint might contribute to your family history. And trust me, these images can reveal so much in your research. I have decades of experience in the photo, genealogy, and history industries. This is your chance to learn from me and discover the stories in your family images. You can find out more by going to MaureenTaylor.com and clicking on Family Photo Investigations.